Now, this is week number two. Right, people who listen to me on the internet must think that I graduated from kindergarten with high honors because I count the messages. This is the second week in our message series, Going the Right Way in a Wrong Way World. Uh, it's, it's kind of a different way to break things up. We, we looked at the Beatitudes as a single unit by themselves, which may or may not be theologically correct. I personally don't think it is. But we did have the opportunity then to transition into some things outside of the Sermon on the Mount that were loosely related. And now we've come back. And starting at the end of the Beatitudes, now we're going to look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus explained to us the right way to live in a culture or from a culture that really didn't live that way. And very few people were proclaiming it that way. Last week I looked at the first, first paragraph in that and saw that the best way to start living in a, the right way is to start by glorifying God. At that point, um, well, for today's message, let's just say, I'm calling this the perfection misconception. And some of you recognize the format of that title. Yes, it is a throwback to the Big Bang Theory. They often used that three-word title with a scientific declaration and then a mess-up somehow in the middle. And you didn't really understand the reason for that title until you were almost done with the episodes. You could always go back and look at it and say, ah, I get it now. Unfortunately, that's going to be one of these messages, like this message. You're going to not really get it until we get to the end. But I am talking about, through this whole message, the perfection misconception. I want to start by going back and looking at the last month or so in our lives and look at this disruption that's come from the coronavirus. Uh, from the, uh, I'm transitioning, by the way, from calling it the coronavirus to calling it social distancing because I think it's more the social distancing now that, that most people are focusing on, and they've kind of forgotten that there was a virus out there that caused it. It's just that this thing has disrupted our lives so much. Um, jobs have been disrupted. Uh, my own wife's job has changed. She didn't have much work here in Enid, and so she was blessed to be able to go to the city, Oklahoma City, to do some of her work. Uh, other people's jobs were totally disrupted. I know in the food industry, there was a lot of lost hours, a lot of decreased income because people could not go in and sit, and so people ate at home more often. Some people lost their job completely because the demand for their product disappeared completely. Relationships were also disrupted. Uh, churches may have been affected in this way more than any other group because we thrive on the relationships we have on Sunday morning when we get together as a congregation, encouraging each other, strengthen each other, pray for each other. I've come to the conclusion that church online is just not the same. We just don't have the support. And thankfully, that has been removed somewhat uh, especially in this congregation, we can remove that completely and still support each other. Another way that people have been disrupted is in their recreation. Now, I don't have much sympathy for this, to be honest with you, but those guys that complain to me all the time that they didn't get to finish their football season or their basketball season or whatever it was, and they, they didn't get to try out for soccer, just doesn't touch me very much because I'm not an athlete. 
But I imagine they're not very touched by my concern that I don't get to the, go to the movie theater very much right now. In fact, I believe the soccer restrictions are being lifted, but the movie theaters are still, open movie theaters are still almost impossible to find. So our recreation got disrupted quite a bit too. And I even talked to some people, uh, myself included, who got my dentist appointment disrupted. I went to the doctor during all of this. I got a bad tooth and I went to the emer uh, quick care center down there, the, the emergency center. And I pulled up to the door and there was a big sign on there saying, don't come in. And a phone number and I had to call and then they, they answered my call and they said, okay, go park in the parking lot. We'll come get you when we want you. And as a person with a background in medicine, that was just absolutely unacceptable to me. That is not uh, a sensitive and caring way to do medicine at all, but I can also understand what they were trying to accomplish. Lots of disruptions. How we manage those disruptions has been kind of the crisis that people really have, though. I mean, having the disruption is one thing, but how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? We all have our ways of dealing with life, don't we? Our habits, our routines that help make life manageable. Uh, we go to bed about the same time every night, or maybe I'm the only one, but most people have a bedtime, and they go to bed at about the same time every night. Why do they do that? So they can get a good night's sleep before they have to get up at basically the same time every day. And why do they get up basically at the same time every day? So you can be where you need to go at the right time. And we have a lot of those little traditions that help us manage our life, don't we? When I was in um, healthcare, I was uh, asked to take a class on uh, psychiatric health. And one of the projects they had us do was go home and tomorrow morning, Keep track of what order you do things in. Brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, taking your shower. Then the day after that, the assignment was do them backwards. I, I challenge you to try that sometime. It is a weird feeling. You reach for your toothbrush and you go to brush your hair. It's weird. And it makes you feel like life is out of control. We all have those well-worn paths in life that we follow so that we can manage things and keep things hopeful and understandable. And nobody was more like that than the Pharisees in Jesus' day. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to the people that are listening to him on the mountain, your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees lived to be righteous. They did everything they could to be righteous. It might be a little bit helpful for, to have a little more background on the Pharisees. So, uh, I didn't know some of these things, and I found them out this week. I'll share them with you. The Pharisees were apparently a reaction to the Sadducees. When the people came back from the Babylonian exile, they rebuilt the temple. We call that the second temple and started what's called the second temple period. But what didn't come back was the king. And pretty soon those priests who were controlling the temple began to say, since there's no king, we get that political power. 
And they used that political power basically to capitulate to the Greeks. When Alexander the Great, the Great came in, they didn't put up a fight. They just gave him the city. Same thing happened when the Romans came. The, Pharise the Sadducees went out, met him. Met, um, one of the emperors, came here was Titus, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, went out, said, basically, it's all yours. Uh, just don't kill us. And so they didn't even put up a fight. The Pharisees reacted to that because they felt like a place like the temple should not be under that much influence of pagan governments. Because those pagan governments then made demands of the Sadducees who just went along with it. In fact, in some cases, the priests that were put in power weren't even Jews. Some of the priests were appointed by those governments that took over. And the Pharisees saw them as politically stained. There was also a spiritual reaction to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were teaching that since the Old Testament said all spiritual experiences had to take place on the Temple Mount, you have to come to the Temple Mount to see God. If you want to do something spiritual like pray or learn, you have to come to the Temple. The Sadducees controlled that and made a lot of money off of that. The Pharisees, however, said that the spiritual experience can be had in each village in the synagogue. And they would have Torah studies and teaching in the synagogue that was meant to enhance their spiritual life as well. And the moral issues were something else that the Pharisees had against the Sadducees. Morally, the Sadducees applied themselves to the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. All that we need to know is in those, none of the rest of the Old Testament applies. Pharisees, however, did study the rest of what we call the Old Testament, the, Old Te the um, Jewish scriptures. But they also studied the oral law which they believed Moses also gave. They, they thought Moses gave two sets of laws. Basically, one he wrote down so that nobody could mess with them, and then he gave this other set of laws that was oral that was supposed to explain how you apply those. Many people think that that was created many years after Moses, maybe even after the exile. So you can see that these guys, in reaction to the Sadducees, have done a, a great deal to manage and control their spirituality and their righteousness. Being righteous was the key to them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the fact that you cannot be righteous, as righteous as a Pharisee, and be righteous enough. In fact, in the Previous paragraph, verse 20 is the end of that paragraph, starting in verse 17, he says, don't get the misconception that because I'm here, the Old Testament laws are going away. Very common misconception in our culture. I frequently have people say, well, you can't tell me I have to go to church, you can't tell me I have to read my Bible, because those laws no longer apply. Jesus has come. And they miss the fact that there were basically three kinds of laws that Moses gave. The moral law, the Levitical law, and the national law. And yes, Jesus fulfilled everything in the Levitical law. He, he fulfills, completes, brings to being done all the sacrifices. There's no longer any sacrifice necessary for our righteousness. The moral law kind of went away when the nation went away because other nations' laws came into plot, to play. And so Jesus is saying, yes, the religious law is fulfilled, 
But the moral law still stands, and that's what he's going to take the rest of this chapter, basically, to illustrate the fact that you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And he takes several of the Old Testament laws, like the law of murder, and he uses that to illustrate this point. He says, you have heard it said, and he'll say that six times in this passage, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, he says, that you shouldn't, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, you shouldn't hate your neighbor either. He says, if you hate your neighbor and you call him a fool, the Greek word means empty-headed, you call him a fool, that you're subject to the fires of hell, not just the council. And he, he takes that part of this passage and he explains that you cannot just simply take the word murder and then define that act as the literal taking of an innocent life on purpose. Uh, that, that's, part of the, that's part of the definition, on purpose. You can't do that and then be mean to other people because it's the attitude that matters. If you look at somebody walking down the street, somebody who's a member of your village or somebody who's close by you in business and you'd really like to see something bad happen to them, maybe their business would fold or maybe their family would fall apart or you'd like to see something, you know, they just hurt you so much that you want to see something bad happen. He says that's essentially the same as murder. And he set a standard there that even the Pharisees can't keep. Next, he talks about adultery. And he says, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, if you younger people don't know what that means, you can ask your parents, all right? With lustful intent, then you are guilty of adultery already in your heart. Hmm. In other words, you can't simply define adultery as a married person having sex with somebody who's not your spouse, but married to somebody else, and call that adultery. Again, it's the intent that Jesus says matters the most. He, he doesn't just leave it with that, though. He, he talks about the intent of the heart, but then he goes on and talks about divorce. And he says, if you, you've heard it said that you can get divorced by giving your wife a certificate of divorce. Again, I'm paraphrasing for speed here, but... He says, you can't just give that certificate and then send her away because if she goes away and marries somebody else, you have made her commit adultery. And if you marry somebody else, now you're committing adultery. So this, he's taken this standard to the place where you cannot, once you have married someone, look at someone else and say, I like that better. All I need to do now is find an excuse to get rid of this one. The relationship is more important than that. He talks about oaths, and he says, you shall, you've heard it said that you should fulfill what you swear. Uh, I believe he says to fulfill what you have sworn to the Lord. He says, Jesus says, I tell you, don't swear at all. Why? Why would you want to? The only reason to swear an oath is, well, one would be so that you can have an authority over you that can get you out of it. So don't swear by the temple, because that's where the, the maker of all these laws is he lives. Don't swear by Jerusalem, because that's where the king who's going to follow all these laws lives. 
Don't, don't swear by even the hair on your head. Because you can't even determine what color it's going to be. Now, I know some people in this room think that they can color their hair, but trust me, in a week or so, the real color is going to pop out in the roots. You can't ultimately change it. So why swear at all? Simply have a good enough character that when you say yes, everybody automatically knows it's going to happen. And if you say no, everybody can be assured it's not going to happen. Another writer in the Bible will say, make sure that when you say yes, it means yes, and let your no mean no. And let it go with that. Finally, he talks about resisting evil people. And he talks about, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, I can't find that phrase like that in the Old Testament anywhere. So I have to assume that that's part of the oral tradition that they're supporting. Jesus comes back and says, wait a minute. You need to love your enemy too. He says, you need to love your enemy. That way you can be like your father who is in heaven. Kind of leaves a lack of doubt on who that father is. That's God Almighty. He's the one in heaven. Footnote, that's the first time God is referred to as our father in the New Testament. He'll do it again in the next chapter. Why would we want to be like God our Father? Or how would we want to be like the, our Father who is in heaven? Well, Jesus says He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And He sends sunshine on the good and on the evil. He blesses everybody. He wants everybody to be blessed. He wants everybody to have enough to eat. If you're in an agrarian society, you recognize sun and rain basically control your life. And so he's saying to them, you can't resist those people. Those people who are your enemies. You need to love your enemies. You need to do what's good for them and pray for them that they would prosper. See, in all of this, he's basically taking the legality that the Pharisees were so popular for, he's putting them off of the paper and into your heart and saying, now you go find ways to over-meet those. Then your righteousness will be what I was talking about in verse 20. And he finishes this paragraph with probably the most confusing Verse at the end of any chapter I've seen. I, it took me years to figure this out. He finishes this paragraph with the statement, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, for one thing, why put that here? He's talking about righteousness. And so he's connecting righteousness with perfection. And that's one of two words in this verse that confuse modern Americans. The word perfect in our understanding, means flawless, immaculate, uh, with, with, without lack of anything, and without error. I found this in several references that that is not necessarily the way Greek people would have understood that Greek word. Greek people would have understood that to mean mature and complete, one, one reference said, 
having all the raw material needed to complete. Now, to me, that changes the way that this verse is understood. But the second word that really hung me up is the little bitty word, as. It's a good translation, but it leads me to believe that I am being told I need to reach a quantitative goal. I have to have a certain quantity of righteousness. You, therefore, be perfect as much as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is one way to understand it. But you know, there's another way to understand that. You, therefore, must be perfect, not as much as, but in the same manner as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, he's just talked about loving your enemy and how God gives them this wonderful uh, rain and, and uh, sun even though they're evil. He's going out of his way to bless those that couldn't care less about him. And if you track that thought backwards through the passage, now you run into the fact that every one of those things that Jesus talked about, resisting the evil, taking oaths, Instead, you know, not looking for the loopholes you can put into an oath or adultery or murder are all now others focused instead of me focused. Just like God focuses on doing good for others, in that same manner, we can be righteous like God is. In essence, what Jesus is saying to us at this point is instead of being perfect in law, be perfect in love. Instead of getting a checklist that you can check off and make sure that you've done everything that you think is right to make you right, look at the other guy and say, what does he need? It's really very much a trust issue as most things are in the scripture. Do I trust Jesus enough to take care of me to the point that I don't have to defend myself or protect myself or provide for myself by taking advantage of others? It's a very, very difficult thing to do at that point. For human beings, it's hard to Look at someone who has a need and say, I can meet that need, but I may need that later. To trust Jesus to say, go ahead, meet that need. I'll take care of you later. That person needs a friend. And that might hurt your reputation in the workplace or in the school. Go ahead. Be their friend. I'll take care of you later. I uh, personally have a little bit of a challenge with all those, uh, I call them panhandlers, the people that have the cardboard signed down in the city, you know, need help with food. They stopped saying we'll work for food because people started offering them jobs. Um, but they need help. And they're, they're making their living off the generosity of others. I have some criteria that I use, but I've started carrying a little bit of cash in the car. Just in case. God will take care of me later. Can we do that? It's the next step in going the right way. 
in a wrong way world. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your presence here today. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for your provision. We're thankful for your promises that we can trust in you. And because we can trust in you, the right thing to do is to go out on a little bit of a limb and bless those people that are around us with an encouraging word or a couple of extra minutes of listening or maybe even a little financial help when we have the ability. It's difficult for us to invest in someone that is different from us we feel like that's risky. Help us to grow to the point where we realize that that's not really risky. That's trusting in you. And we'll thank you for all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.